Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we talk with Dana Sitar, freelance writer and editor in personal finance, careers, and digital media. Dana recently wrote a piece for the Pointer Institute exploring how using the passive voice in journalism can lead to accusations of bias, taking sides, or obscuring responsibility. Our conversation focused on how journalists have historically used language and how in this moment we have an opportunity to identify and reckon with our biases, our verbal crutches, and our ingrained habits. Doing this can help journalists and other content creators be more inclusive of and accountable to everyone in the audience and strengthen trust with the community. Let's start by talking about this moment that we're in because it's not as if people have never scrutinized the passive voice or journalistic language in general. But there's been a lot of scrutiny this past week about how journalists use language in news coverage. And there's this more collective desire or this more public desire to call that out and and discuss it and try to address it. I think this moment is definitely agitating that desire, but our scrutiny of the language that journalists use and the news media uses has grown with every new uh, medium or platform. My first instinct, because I'm a millennial, is to say that we over-scrutinize the news now or extra-scrutinize the news because it's on social media. But I assume that the same thing happened um, when the news came onto television and then um, cable news became more uh, pervasive and people were consuming it more there. But what I see, um, and because I know digital media is journalists and newsrooms are trying to adapt to communicating with audiences and communicating news stories through social media, which is a very different platform from even an article on their website. And so the language that they use is much more easily scrutinized because there are just fewer words in every post and because a lot more people are seeing it. A lot more people see a social media post than actually go to the website or read a print newspaper. Yeah. When TV came out, it was supposed to be the headlines or the highlights of the day, and you were supposed to go back to the paper to get the details. But yeah, social media is different because it permeates so deeply. And and it's journalists and other providers of information. And that gets muddled because we just throw it all into one bucket. So what are some of the ways you've noticed information purveyors are using language on social media or in digital articles that you find either problematic or that you that you notice? I don't think that most people who are sharing information on social media or on the web are using language intentionally kind of at all. Um, that's probably the biggest problem. But the bigger issue is because people have so many different agendas with the information that they're sharing, whether it's Um, news reporting or content marketing or kind of anything in between, those goals tend to come to the forefront. And the impact of the language that they're using and how they're using it and the the composition of a piece, like, like you mentioned, passive voice, is kind of just pushed to the back burner. I'm a former journalist and now I teach. And so I've always railed against the passive voice because one, it, it makes your story weak in my mind. You're taking away any sort of action, you're pulling back on it. But two, I think for me, the the larger issue is you're taking away the actor and therefore potentially the responsibility. Like you said, in composition, in a sentence, basically the passive voice puts the emphasis on the receiver 
or depending on what you're talking about, the victim of a situation rather than the doer. Anyone just in composition or in writing in general recommends using active voice, which starts a sentence kind of with the doer or the actor, because it just feels stronger. Kind of you start with a subject, you really put a focus on the subject of the sentence and what is going on in a sentence. It feels active versus passive. I think there's a reason that we use that language. Um, in journalism though, especially in crime reporting, it gets used a lot. There was a passive voice also. In speech, it gets used a lot as well <laughs> because yes. you don't have room to edit. Totally. <laughs> but I suspect that journalists use passive voice often in crime reporting in an attempt to avoid convicting someone in their reporting because you have to be so careful about suggesting that someone is guilty of a crime that they have not yet been convicted of. So especially in that kind of reporting and then sort of anything where there's any kind of accusation or misconduct um, being alleged against someone, journalists are very careful with good reason in how they write about it. But I think over time that habit has probably caused an overuse of the, the passive voice, even in crime or potential crime reporting, um, like reporting on the protests recently, journalists have reason to be careful about how they're saying these things. But because tensions are so high between kind of both sides of this situation, um, you also have to be very careful about how you're conveying each side. And a very quick reading, especially like in social media, where uh, the information is boiled down to just a few sentences. A very quick reading can compare how you're using passive voice to potentially de-emphasize the responsibility of police and to emphasize the responsibility of protesters or other citizens. When you're covering crime stories, it's true. I don't want to convict somebody. We are being very careful. So I always tell my students now, you can never say somebody did something. They're either um, arrested for it, on trial for it, convicted for it, because the very next story could be they've been exonerated for it. But the idea of the passive voice, it's true. You're trying to be careful to not convict and to walk that line. And I think there's another layer, and that is the role of news releases and uh, shrinking journalistic resources. A lot of times these crime stories come to us through... Uh, news releases from police departments or sheriff's departments, et cetera. And they're writing the news release to carefully, um, one, to carefully give us the information, but to carefully balance, their, or maybe not even balance, to carefully excise their responsibility from whatever's going on. And it's easy to pull from a news release and drop that into your story. I call it cop speak or, or press release speak. And I, I try to teach my students to sort of rewrite it conversationally. But I think that also plays a role is this one, this idea that you're taking something written outside the newsroom and with very little time to get something on the air or to do your job, you're relying on that information from an official source and allowing that to seep into your own language. I want us to get more conscious of that and deliberate about that as a society as well. I think you're absolutely right about the shrinking resources and, and just pulling information directly from press releases. If you suggested to a journalist that they should pull from a commercial press release directly, um, they would be very hesitant to do that and in, in concern about uh, marketing for a company. But journalists are not as hesitant to pull from a press release that comes from public officials or the police department, because it seems like 
the official information, which I suspect has something to do with the history of journalism and newspapers being sort of a paper of record. And part of your job was to put that public record out before police departments had PR departments. And these habits kind of just got carried over and there wasn't time to stop and think about the implications of that. You mentioned the shrinking resources too. I think that plays a huge role in how language is used in journalism, just because there isn't enough time or resources to go into improving the language before it's published, which is on the one hand, understandable um, as a, you know, as a journalist and, and as a content creator, it's understandable knowing that you only have so much time in the day to put something out. But on the other hand, it's also a difficult argument to make because of how impactful that language is in the media. Yeah, that's an excellent point. The shrinking of resources and the the extra demands put on a journalist's time and the corporate nature of siphoning money, you know, all of that systemically plays a role and we should be addressing all of that large stuff. But no matter what the challenges are, when you're doing something as important as impactful as sharing information, we've got to find a way to to do this better. And so how might you encourage journalists or or guide journalists into how to do this better? This might be a very biased response, but I recommend careful editing. Um, That is because I'm an editor, because I understand the value of it. Um, I think that is one of the huge shrinking resources in both newsrooms, in the news media, and in just online content in general, is a lack of editing, if not exactly editing, like a copy editor or something like that, but just any kind of second look or oversight of content between its creation and its publication. Just that second look that hasn't been invested in a piece of content from the beginning can really make a difference in catching those unintended meanings in how the language is used and catching the unconscious biases uh, that the writer wasn't aware of. I think that's really important and it takes time and it takes resources because you have to hire additional people. In addition to the ethical argument behind it, I think a business argument can also be made for investing in editing and oversight because of the amount of time and resources that newsrooms and publications have to put into reacting to the audience response when something doesn't go well you could shift that time into editing and getting it right the first time. As writers and content creators, we should always keep the audience and the context of a piece in mind. So who's going to be reading it and what do they know? Where are they coming from? What are their biases? Part of that is like if you're publishing on a platform like Twitter, A lot of us know that we can assume that's a very inflammatory platform, that readers on that platform are going to be looking for something wrong with your piece. So you should also be looking for something wrong with what you're publishing on that platform um, in the tweet copy itself and in the piece that's being linked to. And that's kind of a cynical way of looking at it, but it's really just a matter of getting into the audience's head and getting ahead of those arguments. The context as well, I think when we're looking at something like the passive voice and the piece that I wrote for Pointer on the New York Times piece and mostly tweet that was criticized for its use of the passive voice, taking that information directly out of the news article where the passive versus active voice was not super obvious 
and condensing it into a tweet into just a few sentences where two were passive and one was active became really obvious. So you have to think about not just is this a good sentence and grammatically correct and interesting, but also what is the context in which it's going to be read? That's really great advice. And I think it's something we don't think about enough is the audience and how they're going to take something. And so having a second set of eyes, even if it's a colleague, if you don't have an editor, if there's a colleague that can look it over for you, although editor is the best. And you're right, newspapers across the country have been cutting back on editors. And we've seen the results. Uh, we've seen more complaints about stories. We've seen more errors, et cetera. And there are so many phrases out there that seep into our language, cliches and things like that. Let's start with the defund the police hashtag that's been circulating. Because I, I find that one very interesting because it's taken hold and yet it really doesn't mean what everyone thinks it means on its face. It also, like double whammy, is very inflammatory because it's going to be a knee-jerk trigger reaction to people who absolutely think, oh my God, you want to get rid of police departments, which isn't what it means. That's almost how any kind of slogan or hashtag works is that it has to be easy to say and easy to remember. And a lot of times it has to be inflammatory because that's what catches people's attention, especially on social media as a hashtag. Um, if you think again about the context on that platform, a stream of tweets and several hashtags, if you haven't yet heard the phrase defund the police or the movement, and you see that hashtag, you're going to check it out. Um, but if you make it more complicated, it's a lot harder to catch people's attention. And so there's a lot of times a benefit to that. But the drawback in the same way that news headlines need to be catchy, especially on social media to catch attention in that stream of information that we're getting, the drawback is that if that's only as far as people go, then they're not going to get the right message and everybody is going to interpret it differently. So some people might take those extra steps and think about what it might mean to defund the police. And some people might just stop right there. It depends on what they're bringing to it. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. Today, we're talking with writer and editor Dana Sitar. When talking about movements like that um, and reporting on them, it's important to understand, uh, to go back to the audience again and think about who created that slogan um, and who were they speaking to? And then as you're reporting it, who are you speaking to and what additional context do they need to understand what that means? And how can you get it to them as quickly as possible? Often, if you're, if you're publishing on social media, how can you get that information into a tweet or a headline? And I love the way you broke it down. Who started the message? Who was that message in particular intended for? And then who are we trying to talk with? And I've seen so many stories, I'm sure you have too, in the past week. Here's what that means. What do people mean when they say this? So there is this effort to communicate. And I think to your point about inflammatory uh, or you know attention-grabbing hashtags and headlines get our attention, it maybe is doing its job because we're having the conversation. Yeah, a week ago, I had never thought about the concept of defunding police departments. And the way that it's being approached seems like such an intriguing and, and brilliant and progressive idea right now. <laughs> um, but if, if you had just thrown that message at me, um, I guess a couple of weeks ago, it 
wouldn't have occurred to me and it wouldn't have made sense. Right. But because the conversation has been thrown at us in such a strong way, we're being forced to understand what that means. And so it's really helpful sometimes to use that kind of language. There are a lot of opportunities for us right now to think about our language and think about how we naturally, whoever we are, go about communicating and what are the implications of that. And I think your article in Pointer really got to that issue in a lot of ways. And then the public editor for NPR, Kelly McBride, who also is the ethicist at Pointer, Kelly McBride writes this amazing piece for NPR and Pointer about the phrase unarmed black man, which appears in police news releases all the time. And then you break it down. What really does that phrase mean, that cliche now that we kind of just fall back on? We have to qualify it. Why? Because the assumption in mainstream white society is, oh, if he's been arrested, he must be armed, I guess. And that's the point that Kelly McBride was making. And, you know, as a white woman who worked in journalism, shame on me for not getting that earlier, right? Shame on me for not really understanding the implications of the words I might have used in this situation. And so I think this moment is exciting for language too, because we actually can examine what we're doing as maybe part of the mainstream uh, content creation machine. I had exactly the same reaction to that article and I loved it so much. I think that's a really good example of why we need access to diverse voices because she wrote that piece in response to a letter, an email, I assume, from an NPR follower. So that might not have been something that she, as a white woman with all of her years of news reporting, had thought of either. It was something that was not apparent to me until I read the article. But as soon as you hear the way that someone describes the implications of that phrase, it's become so obvious. And and like you said, I feel the same way. Shame on me for not realizing that. But we can't know what someone else's experience is. And we can't know what it means to talk about someone else whose experience we don't share and how they prefer to be talked about or how our language is affecting them until we ask them or listen when they're talking about it. There's a great push in a lot of places for more diversity in newsrooms, which is fantastic. We need more diversity in newsroom leadership among editors so that all of that language can be scrutinized and, and understood from multiple perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also to your point earlier, in addition to diversifying newsrooms, is to expand the idea of what a newsroom audience really is. I think historically, newsrooms have counted as their audience, those in the sort of mainstream of the society. And there are other community members who are right there, but because maybe they're part of a marginalized community or non-traditional community, we aren't deliberately, intentionally thinking of them as also our audience, and therefore they become othered inside the news reporting. And so this moment is an opportunity for us to really recognize that and start deliberately and intentionally including every member of the community inside the space of our audience for our reporting. We need to probably rely on different metrics to understand that diversity because publications often look at subscribers or who's purchasing a newspaper, the community that's being served is much more expansive than that. And the community that's being affected 
by what's being printed is much more expansive than that. Contrary to defund the police, which right away you throw that on the table and everyone's going to have a reaction. I want to talk about the phrase Black Lives Matter because I know I'm coming from a certain bias, but that is a phrase that on its face should be understandable to all of us, right? Like if I said my niece matters, everyone would be like, oh yeah, absolutely. Your niece totally matters. If I said, you know, my dog matters or my house matters, I would be like, well, of course. So that is a phrase that we actually all kind of agree on what it means. And, and yet when it was introduced and as it's been making its way into our vernacular, people have drawn battle lines over something that actually had a collective understanding. Such and such matters. We understood what that meant. And here we are, you know, with the battle lines drawn, of course, because people with different agendas have decided to sort of frame it in certain ways, of course. And so I guess I want to use the Black Lives Matter hashtag as a way to discuss framing, um, even when we thought we had agreement about about language. I've actually heard a couple of really great responses to the pushback against Black Lives Matter, especially people saying all lives matter as, as a response are great ways to help understand it and explain it to someone who doesn't quite get why it's important to highlight Black Lives Matter. Uh, the first one is, and I think this is a very common one, but if one house on a block is on fire and someone says, you know, we need to take care of that house, we need to put out that fire. And someone says, but all of these houses matter. The response quite obviously would be, yes, but this one is on fire. <laughs> It needs to be taken care of. The other ones are going to be fine. The other one um, that I heard, and I liked it because it specifically talks about people, is someone saying that hungry people need food and someone responding, but all people need food. Yes, every person needs to eat, but we need to focus on the people who are hungry because that is where the issue is. That's Those are the people who are hurting. Giving a sort of analogy like that really helps to put it into context for people and help them understand. That's something else that's come out of this moment is this really, I don't know where people are finding the patients, but this really patient explanation and these really good and solid and specific explanations. One thing I love about the millennial generation and the Gen Z is this very reasoned response to some of the hyperbole that comes at your generation. I noticed it after the shooting at Stoneman Douglas High School, the students who were affected, who the ones who chose to be spokespeople, their reason in their response, I mean, there was emotion there too, but it, amongst that emotion was this very reasoned control of language to help really try to convey. And I was impressed by that. And I think in this moment too, and I really love that, the, the power of language and the power of reason and the power of explanation. The idea of objectivity in journalism. In the 20th century, journalists held fast that we are objective, which of course is impossible. We know that no human could possibly be objective. We all have our biases. For the past uh, couple of decades, we've been pushing back on that idea of objectivity and neutrality. And of course, in language, language that we think is neutral or passive is absolutely not neutral at all. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how to navigate the idea of your biases and the ideas of neutrality and objectivity in language when you're writing while still remaining journalistic? So it's a really interesting topic for me because I haven't worked in a traditional newsroom as a news reporter. I come from service journalism and blogging. Uh, and so a lot of the world that I come from 
is really focused on putting yourself forward. You still have to understand where you might be having biases about who the audience is. I write in personal finance and I see a lot of misunderstandings of the audience or blind spots and really not understanding you know, low-income people, someone with a low credit score, communities that a lot of writers are just not aware of. In those cases, I think less about trying to appear as if you have no opinion and more about understanding and letting people know that you're speaking to everyone in the audience. So that's as a, as a writer. And then what I try to catch as an editor is finding those opportunities to make sure that anybody who is likely to be in the audience reading a piece understands that this is for them too, um, and understands that we understand who they are. Um, in journalism, you have the added hurdle of reporting on public officials and political races and things that are just wildly divisive. In addition to that is the importance of relationships with those public officials that you also have to report on and hold to account. Um, I think we're hearing that also from at the level of the White House too in national reporting, the attempt to balance keeping a relationship with that White House and also hold it to account, which at its face at any level is objectively probably not possible. You can't always keep someone happy and also be kind of their watchdog, <laughs> whether they're doing anything wrong or not. So I think that's kind of the myth of neutrality and objectivity that that journalists face, the kind of conundrum. Well, I think you make a good point. We develop relationships with the officials, but are we developing relationships with community members? And I think instead of thinking about objectivity or neutrality, it is what you said. It's about relationship. But are you tapping into all the relationships that you need to tap into to properly cover your community. And I go back to an example of a radio station I was listening to was doing a story on ad blockers. And the lead was people are very upset about ad blockers. You know, I don't know the exact words, but it was it was the idea was people were upset. And so I brought that to my students and I said, what do you think of this lead? And I said, are you upset about ad blockers? They're like, no, we love ad blockers. I'm like, exactly. The story is not for you. They're not talking to you. They're talking to a different audience. So my students in that sense were a community that wasn't included in that story. To go back to your point, that idea of relationships, but not just relationships with public officials. Are you getting the relationships with the community as well? You can be pulled in so many directions as a journalist with so many different priorities. It's very easy to get caught up often in writing for your editor. I, I know that from being on a, an editorial staff. Um, and you also can, can feel kind of bogged down and restricted by corporate owners and advertising needs and just all kinds of things that happen in the business of journalism. But if you can always bring it back to thinking about that audience and who you're writing for, it really kind of simplifies that and helps you understand that what you're doing is creating a piece of content that someone is going to read and that has to serve some purpose for them. So what are you trying to give to that audience and how can you best do that? It can just sort of help you reframe the way that you create content or write a story for your community. So given that, how do you recommend journalists proceed when they are writing their stories, their headlines, their social media posts? We need to talk 
more about journalism in the context of composition, especially when, when thinking about this kind of issue of how language is perceived and how it might reveal hidden biases. News reporting and journalism is an art, not a science. There's no perfect way to write any one sentence, and it all just depends on how an audience reads it. And the creator has a lot more control over how an audience perceives a piece of content probably than we think. And so if we take the time to think about that and how we can compose with that audience in mind, think about the context in which they're gonna read it, think about the purpose that it needs to serve for that audience, that gets us to a much simpler place to achieve those goals and to serve the community. Thank you to Dana Sitar, freelance writer and editor in personal finance, careers, and digital media, and author of a recent Pointer article on the pitfalls of using a passive voice in journalism. Find a link to the article and Dana's website at newsincontext.net. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on your favorite podcast channel. We're also on Twitter at News in Context SF, and you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening. <laughs>